Hi, and welcome to the Slush Podcast. As you probably know, Slush is the world's leading startup event. You're about to hear an interview conducted at Slush 2017 on the Founder Studio stage where the biggest names in tech sit down for an intimate Q&A. Michael Pryor is the CEO of Trello. Kalle Freese talked with him about unlocking the secrets of productivity and how different kinds of users are using Trello. I have five of these interviews over two days, and I had like four Trello boards organizing. Oh, that's awesome! Organizing this whole thing my, and doing my the whole research. conference. Like my um, my assistant like makes a board whenever I go to a conference, so I just have a, like a board, and I just keep going to it to be like, okay, what do I got to do next? I look at the next card, and it tells right. me what to do. So I'd love to hear how did you get into tech? How did I get into tech? Um, oh, that's a great. That's a that's a fun story so um my brother was always into computers and so we had a computer at home and it was a ti-99 and they used to actually in the old days they used to send out magazines that would have computer code in it it was like base uh basic actually and i so i would type type like two pages of computer code into the computer not knowing anything what i was doing like i'm just like transcribing And then, you know, you'd get to the end, you hit enter, and, like, magic stuff would happen on the computer. When I went to college, um, I had, as part of my scholarship, I had to work when I got to college, so I had to pick a job. And I delivered newspapers for a while, which meant I had to get up at 5.30 in the morning, and it was in New Hampshire, so super cold. It was kind of, like, here right now, actually. Um, and it was not fun. So then I switched to the dining hall and I was working there for a while, and that was not fun. And then I saw that there was an opening at the help desk in the computer center, I didn't really know that much about computers, but I was I liked them and my brother, my older brother, you know, was, was into computers, so I was like, okay, I'll go. And like I just um you know, started working there and helping people with their Macs and then uh started taking some CS classes and I was really fun and I enjoyed it and just kept going from there. So you weren't you weren't thinking of becoming a CS major before that? No. I was actually I got to school um And I had, I mean, you know, like, I'm a white guy growing up in the U.S., like, very privileged situation, right? So I went to a very good schools and and very lucky, and, um, you know, which is a big piece of the journey to where I got to. I don't want to overlook that. Um, but one of the things when I, when, I, when I got to school, I thought... I'll just take all these classes. I took a math class, a CS class, and a physics class. And this is the first time when I got to college that, that classes were actually difficult. And I started failing my math class and my physics class. I got a 30 on my physics class, which was very surprising to me. I was very like a smack in my face um, from being an entitled little jerk in high school and younger and like kind of growing up a little bit. But um, computer science always just seemed fun and was interesting and so I poured a lot of energy into that and so it was it was less friction than some of the other paths that I could have taken right so what happened after you graduated after I graduated yeah, yeah I got, did you get a job I, I got a job at this company called Juno um, which was a startup in 1998 that was trying to disrupt AOL 
Um, and uh, it didn't really work so so well uh, when we went public. Um, that was at the time uh, companies were going public, tech companies would go public, and their stock would you know open at twenty dollars and then close the day at like one hundred and fifty. They would like, you know, we opened at thirteen dollars and closed the day at ten. So that was like one of the first what they call a broken IPO where you close lower than you open. So it was very kind of the the beginning of the end, f right before the dot com crash. And again, I was really naive and too stupid to know what I was doing. And so I decided with a friend of mine to start a company. And we were just dumb. We were like, I don't know, that doesn't seem that hard. Let's do that. And so we started uh, Fog Creek Software in New York City. Uh, my co-founder, Joel Spolsky, and I. Um, and that's where that's why I'm sitting here today. Cool. And then that led to Stack Overflow and ultimately Trello. Right. What's the most exciting thing about building Trello? Okay, so to be honest, it's actually like the interesting thing about when you're building software, you know, you want to build something that people love, you know, like that's like, I think that's what motivates a lot of people. They want to build something that people use, they use things that they love. Um, you know, we always, when we had, I built a lot of tools over the years, but most of them were targeted at developers. So Trello was really the first thing that we said, hey, we're going to build this for a very, horizontal universal audience and um that was the hypothesis we didn't know if it would work but you know it sort of started to work and i think like the coolest thing about trello is that i just meet people from so many different walks of life that then when i tell them about trello they're like oh i use trello it's awesome and i that is like the most amazing thing because that it really didn't happen before you know and uh, you know it's lucky enough to build something that kind of has this huge audience so uh 25 million people signed up for trello which is just like like blows my mind um when i think about it um but also just like coming to conferences like this and talking to people like i was talking to you know you mentioned you use trello like I, that's the coolest part and I, for me it's like the thing i want to do is make sure i take all that and bring it back to the team because they're they're actually building the tool i haven't actually written any lines of CoffeeScript that run, you know, Trello's front end. I wrote some of the billing software, but, um, you know, so it's it's like, it's like there's a team of over 100 people that have poured, um, you know, all their, their energy and creativity into this product. And it's sort of like the best thing is like sharing that, taking that back to people and be like, I met this person and I met that person. And um, so... Well, What's what are some of the craziest things you've seen people do and build with Trello? It's, that's a f interesting question. Now that I'm in Europe, I'll, I'll, I'll preface this with like actually the hardest part about this is I don't know a lot of the ways or things that people use Trello for because we don't we can't see that information. Like we sort of intentionally designed it to not in the processes around it so that we don't know. So the only thing that I see is like somebody writes a blog post or they tell us or things like that. Um, you know, uh, some cool ways that... They, so when we first started out, this isn't actually super weird, but when we first started out, we had this hypothesis that it, it was going to be used by all kinds of different people, but we didn't actually know how people would use it. And I remember I started to see like blog posts from different people at different companies that would start talking about how they were using Trilly to do X. And X was always something I was like, oh, interesting. I never thought of that. Um, now we talk about X, you know, and so one example is like somebody at Heroku 
was using a Trello board to onboard new employees. So they basically created a board that was like, here's all the things you need to know on your first day. Here's the things you need to do. Here's pictures of everybody on the team. And then they had that like sort of main board and they would copy it. And when the new person came and they would add the new person to the copy and then that person would you know, work through it, check off things, move the cards to done. And like one of the last tasks was go back to the main board and add your face to the list of cards that says who's on the team. You know, so sort of the self-propagating system. And it was a really lightweight way to capture their onboarding process. I was like, that is super cool. I'd never thought of that before. Um, you know, and, and uh, you know, the, the thing that... That, that amazes me to this day is 90% of people use Trello for work. When we surveyed them, we asked them this. 50% um, use it for their personal life. So there's like a big overlap, right? Like there's only 10% that only use it for their personal life. And so I think that overlap is really important today because I think the sort of boundaries and the roles, the, the software that we use is much more about like it, our devices are always with us. We're always sort of connected. And so the software you use sort of spans all the different roles we play throughout the day and throughout our life. And so like the, the really cool thing about Trello, I think, is that people use it for so many things that have nothing to do with work, right? Like planning your wedding, which is pretty cool because like no one, you know, if you'd started out and you're like, I'm going to build a Kanban tool or I'm going to build project management software, you'd be like, no one's ever going to use that to plan their wedding. No one's ever going to use that to do a kitchen renovation. No one's ever going to use that to... Um, organize their, their Girl Scout troop. Um, and so a lot of those use cases, I think, are really the kind of, the, the sort of, they, they demonstrate the fact that like people really love this and use the software because they bring it throughout their whole life. Right. And you mentioned that two-thirds of your team are remote. How did, is that intentional? Did it kind of start happening? Yeah, so... Um, I think a lot of companies end up in this scenario where they might have somebody that's a superstar and then the person has to move for some other reason. Like say you have a great developer and her husband is, gets a job somewhere else. So she's like, you know, what do I do? Do I leave the company or do I stay? Or, you know, like what's the scenario? And like sometimes people, the, the companies end up in this situation they're like, well, why don't you just work remotely, right? It's not, it's not like a policy for the company, but they'd rather not lose her, you know, for, for some other reason. So they sort of experiment with it in that way. And um, that's how we started doing remote work. We had a developer um, and it, the, the place was Hawaii. So we had our office in New York and, and it had been somebody that had been with us for a long time. So I knew they understood the culture. They, they were a great developer, all those sorts of things. Um, but, it wasn't until we started to hire people remotely. So we put up a job posting and it was for a remote position. And I think the point at which we sort of flipped, which made a huge difference because it's actually really hard to run your team if one person is remote because you're not, the practices and processes that you're doing are not really remote friendly. You know, like you'd have a, you'd have a, a, a meeting, you'd all get in the conference room and then you put the one person on the TV, which is awful for them. Um, and it, it, so until you get to this sort of critical mass, it's really hard to adopt these processes. But that, those are things we learned along the way, made a lot of mistakes. Um, I, I was, I, we took funding at a certain point in 2014 from Index Ventures and Spark Capital and spun the company out into its own. It was sort of taken off. And we, so we were sort of building, you know, before we had built a product, now we're building a company. And I needed to hire uh, different leaders 
So he's going to hire a marketing leader and a sales leader. And the two people, they, they both uh, happen to be women, um, they were people that I wanted to work for us. Like one I had seen uh, previously at a different startup and did, do amazing things. One actually used to work for us, but had to stop because the commute was too long. So she was a salesperson for us, and I wanted to tap her to run our sales team. And so I got to this point where I just raised money. I'm building out the, ex the executive team, and I'm like, I'm going to hire these two people, knowing full well that they were the people I wanted to hire, but they couldn't work in the office. So then I think that was sort of the, you know, like, uh, the, you're like, I was all in at that point. Yeah. I would have a, a ton more questions, but I think it's time to open it up to the audience. We got one in the middle right there. Hello, my name is Fuso. And what is the kind of smallest task you would run a trailer board or what is the biggest one? I think like a launch a company is like a too big and then like a tire shoelace because going out is too small. So is that like a golden rule? Yeah, so it's interesting you ask that because I think like the, if you if you start at the highest level in Trello, um, if you, uh, we have a concept of teams um, in Trello, so you can make a team which actually holds people and boards. It's not just people, but anyway. So you have team. Then below that, there's a there's a concept called collections, which is a business class feature where you can group boards together by collections. Then you get down to the board level. At the board, you go board, list, card. And then on the card, you have lots of stuff, right? You have comments and all those. You can have files and and uh, images and conversation and. But the one thing that you can have on there is talking to your answer is checklists, and then within the there's the checklist item. So it's kind of interesting because you have all this hierarchy, right? And it, and and all those different things do different things on purpose. So like you can put a person's face on a card, but you can't put a person's face on a checklist item. You can't put a person's face on a list like there there's sort of like there's um affordability in those different things not um like an affordance like a, it, they they have different contexts and meanings and i think it's interesting that you ask that because i see that sometimes people come into a board and they'll structure it a certain way thinking that this is how they they think about the process and so they'll make like they'll start making cards for tasks and then they'll be like, oh, shit, I have like 100 cards. Like I should have made a card that like was this higher level concept and added these as checklist items on the, on the back. Um, and we tried to add features that let people switch quickly between those two things. Like you can take a checklist and you can blow it out to a bunch of cards. Um, and I think part of, you know, like Trello isn't prescribing necessarily a, th a thought process on top of that. What we're giving you is a bunch of Lego bricks for you to build something that works for your process. And it, it does happen even myself or I'll get into a, a situation where I'll build a new board and I'll set it up a certain way. And then after like a couple of weeks, I'm like, yeah, actually, I, 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 like it, it shouldn't be this way. Like the, the list should be this other thing. And I just sort of rearrange it. And I think that's that's sort of the malleability, the Play-Doh nature of Trello. I sort of up for that, right? Um, so, all right. Do we have more questions? We got one right there. Hello, I have a question about the competitive market because how do you distinguish yourself from competitors like Asana, for example? What makes people use Trello instead of yeah other tools like Asana? It's a great question. 
I think part of what we're trying to do is a little bit different in that sense of, you know, really, we don't have a preconceived notion about what people are doing or how they're using it. So if you think about Trello, the, the basic unit in Trello is a card. And if you go, if you look at Microsoft Planner, which is basically a clone of Trello, um, they call those things tasks, right? Even in Asana, there's tasks and you assign people to tasks. And they can be assigned to one person. And I think that, you know, sort of that, that, that nomenclature, just that one example of the fact that they're cards and they're not tasks, actually puts Trello in a different place in people's minds. So it goes back to, I was talking on stage before about the, the person who interviewed me, Giles, was, mentioned the term project management software. And I sort of talked a little bit about why I don't think Trello is project management software. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a different thing. And I, I do think that there's overlap. So I think like a, a particular, you might be doing something for work, you're a project manager, and you might decide to use Asana or Basecamp um, or Trello. You could be a developer, you might use Trello. Uh, but Trello is not trying to be the best tool for software developers. Um, we're not trying to be the best tool for a PM. So what are we trying to do? Well, we're really trying to be much more horizontal and applicable in a lot of different use cases. So the example I say is that if you imagine a lot of these other tools, like Jira, for example, is a very useful tool if you're a software developer. Salesforce is a great tool if you're um, doing sales. Uh, Asana is probably a really good tool for project management. Um, and those are depending on which tool, they have like different degrees of, those are like verticals trying to solve a specific problem. And I think about those things as rocks on a beach. And the way I think about Trello is like, Trello is all the sand that fills in all the space between the rocks. And, and the, that sort of comes back to the way that we design Trello and sort of the way that we think about feature requests and those sorts of things. Because a lot of people will come to us and they'll ask for, they might ask for software development features or project management type features. And while all those things are use cases for Trello, the, the hard part for us is to try to distill down what the pain is that people are having and try to figure out how we can solve that across many different use cases, um, which is tough. But So we got one more. We had one more. OK. You have designed such a clever, fundamental, future-proof uh, tool that fits to a lot of things. But where do you think? it will be in five years or, or 10 years, how can it evolve at all? So, you know, the, if you come back to the analogy that I was talking about before about Trello being like a GPS or like a map, like the, the what, there, there's sort of like a metaphor that we're using, the sticky notes, which I think makes it really accessible to everyone. But the, the real purpose of the tool is to get everyone on the same page. Um, one of the things that we're focused on now, so this isn't a five-year vision, but at least in the year, one-year vision, one of the things we're focused on now is that we have a lot of people that use the boards and they use Trello and then they got a lot of stuff going on. And they're struggling a little bit with the pain that we hear. Um, we hear a lot of feature requests for this pain, but the, the underlying pain is that they're trying to get a sense of what's happening across those boards. Um, and so I think like we have a lot of work to do there uh, to help people understand 
Um, you know, at a very simple nature, you, you, or, you know, when you first come into trial and you create one board or two boards, it's like very easy like to do that. Um, and we work pretty well there. But when you start getting up to a, a larger team that's really relying on Trello to do a lot of different things, um, there's a lot of room for us. And we have ideas that we're actually building right now that help people get a better perspective on what's happening across all their boards. So I think that's one area. Um, I also think like part of the reason that we that that I thought that this acquisition was a really good idea for Trello is that Atlassian as a whole, that their mission is to unleash the potential of every team. And they have a lot of different tools that that help in that. And like they actually spent a ton of time and investment in rebuilding chat from ground up. So like we had HipChat for a long time, um, still have HipChat, but we've built a whole new tool called Stride um, and launched it just recently. And it's still in beta that people are being invited to. But like that communication aspect, that's very complementary to Trello. In fact, like Trello and Slack grow great together. They, the, the number one, besides Google Drive, like Trello is probably the number one integration for Slack. All right. I think we have time for one or two quick more questions. But more, more right there. Hi. Um, I, I'm just curious about um, whether you look at the attachment types and uh, what that might tell you about the future of work and the people that are using stuff. Like, um, are uh, millennials not using Microsoft Office anymore? And are you seeing interesting trends there? So I, I think the difference there is that the way there's a lot more, you know, for a while as they talk about bring your own device, like and people would bring their iPhones to work and they were trying to figure out how that works. And that the, the freemium business model in SaaS has really transformed the way that people bring their own software. Um, and I also think that the, the sort of the bar for software now at a, because of that is uh, much higher for adoption, like actually talking to people on a very human nature um, and getting them to like kind of emotionally connect with your software is really the success point now, not just building X, Y, and Z features and, you know, sort of building out a feature list because people use tools that they love. And in a freemium world in which there's sort of this Cambrian SaaS world where everything integrates with everything else and it sort of doesn't matter if you use Google Drive or Dropbox or Box or, you know, because they all have APIs and they all work together. What distinguishes you from those other tools? And it really has to do with that ability to have a connection with the person and build software that they they love. And so design and, um, you know, the personalization aspect of building software is so much more important than it was 10 years ago. Like 10, 15 years ago, if you built a, a website that, you know, allowed you to type into a web browser and saved it in a database and then like retrieved it and showed it on the screen, it was like, you're a magician. Um, and it's like, that's just, you know, somebody can learn that in three hours today, which is awesome. The tools that we use have, have allowed us to build software so much faster. Um, and so there's much more of a creative need in building software and thinking about these problems from a, a new point of view and how people are interacting with them. We're almost out of time. I just have two, two more quick questions. OK. Um, is there a question you wish you would get asked but never do? 
I was going to say that question, but now I'm stumped. So maybe maybe it's not. Well, that my question. my other question is, uh, what would be a book that you've gifted most or, or recommended oh, most? I, I, there's this book from that I, I it's my go-to book because um, I just uh, it's so interesting because you can read it, and as a as an analytical person and like very like I think I'm very logical. I'm obviously not, but I you know when I argue with my wife, like I think I'm making a lot of sense, and turns out I'm not. Um, it, it's called the Psychology of Persuasion um, by Dr. Cialdini, I think is his name, and it's about the sort of like top level things that people use to persuade you. Um, and so they can be used for good or bad, right? Like um, one of them, for example, is like reciprocity. So if I give you a gift, your human nature will make you feel like reciprocal. And, you know, that's why like people, charities will send you little um, return address labels and st- or they'll send you a little bit of money or they'll send you something and, you know, you get a penny or a nickel in the, in the mail and they're sort of like they're trying to play off that reciprocity thing. So it's interesting to read that book. Um, because you can also see how as much as you think you're aware of these things in your daily life, like there's some part of your brain, that animal part that you just like, you know, you, you get sucked into it without even knowing it. Right. And, um, so it's very eye opening book. Great. Awesome. Um, that was really fun chatting with you. I wish we had more time, but we're going to move on. We got somebody coming right after us. So let's give a big hand for Michael. Thanks for listening to the Slush Podcast. Find out more about Slush at slush.org. Please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't yet done so, subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.